Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and we're back with Series 8 of Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. It is that question, isn't it? It's that what if, I think, of like, what if I had done this? What if I'd done this differently? And it's something um, I'm really obsessed with. <laughs> How early is too early to kill off a main character? I guess to call someone a main character, they probably have to be given time to sit with an audience or a reader. Or perhaps death doesn't need to signal the end of a character's story arc. Can death actually be the beginning? Debut novel One Moment is a book that puts you in holy crap territory very early on. And I mean early, within the first page. Before you even have a chance to remember the names of the cast, central character Scarlet dies, setting everything else in motion. It is a stunning debut, and I'm delighted to say that the book's author, Becky Hunter, is my guest today. Chapter 1 Sophie Christopher. Scarlet's death in one moment is no spoiler. As I said, it happens very early on. In fact, throughout the story, we see Scarlet almost watching down on the events unfolding, seeing the ripple effect of her death on the lives of those she loved the most. And very quickly, this book becomes much more about her best friend, Evie, who's struggling to contemplate her life without Scarlet and finding it hard to forgive Nate the man she blames, for Scarlet's death. Described as an emotional, heart-wrenching and uplifting story about friendship, love and sacrifice, this novel certainly delivers. And that could very well be because of the story's origin. Pain and heartache guides many of the best writing by leaning on lessons learnt from experiences we wish we'd never had. As writers, we can often produce our most profound work. And Becky is, sadly, no stranger to losing someone important far too soon. I guess the first thing to say is that, yes, it was inspired by something personal. So, and actually some people listening might even remember her. I um, I lost a very close friend of mine. Sophie Christopher was her name, and she actually also worked in publishing. She died very suddenly when she was 28 of a brain aneurysm. That, that I think sometimes I did I learn a bit about brain aneurysms since then and sometimes I think you can you know that they're there and sometimes you don't and, and she didn't and um she was one of my first friends in London so I moved to London in my early 20s as a lot of people do and um I got my first job in publishing and I was felt really lost I rented a flat or a room in a flat I shared, shared a house room in a flat about 10 minutes away from my office and I used to walk to work um to say because I couldn't really afford the kind of the transport and I didn't know anyone and my nearest friend was about two hours away in London but until I'd moved to London I hadn't figured out quite how big it was because I'd never really been there before and suddenly was terrified of getting on the tube and 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 I felt like I was really lost and floundering and um and Sophie was one of my very first London friends and she kind of made my life bearable at a time when I thought I was wasn't going to make it and she introduced me to her family. She went to take me to like family barbecues and introduced me to all her friends and her and, and one other person, Naomi, we kind of formed a trio. And um, I actually took a sabbatical from work, which is where I started to go back to writing again. But um, in 2019, I took the sabbatical and just before I went away, we had dinner, the three of us, um, at like one of the restaurants in London that we'd always been to and it was like a goodbye and good luck dinner for me and it was the last time I saw her because um like four months later she died and I was abroad and I um 
I still remember getting the call and I just completely fell apart and I and I just dropped to the ground. I remember like being where I was and just dropping. And I'd and I'd been on an island with the not very much signal because I was I was kind of volunteering and um I came back into a signal area and there were loads of missed calls and you can you just you, you just know. So I called the, the person that I was closest to and, and she told me what had happened, but loads of people have been trying to get hold of me to tell me. And um yeah, it was a real shock and it still is. So that was 2019 and um I still have dreams about her and I still wake up sometimes confused and and not really thinking that it happened <laughs> and some really horrible and that kind of time when you wake up and you and you and and if she's been on your dream and, and some really weird kind of dreams where people had been lying to me and telling me she was dead and clearly my like my brain just just trying to work it out and and that she and I had a really vivid dream once that she was alive and that it had all been this like con or something and, and or she'd or she'd come back to life and nobody had told me and I remember and I and in my dream I'd gone to see her and like I was trying to understand why like for all of these years and and it, it was one of those weird dreams but it, it even it took me quite a long time when I woke up to like figure out that it that that wasn't the case and I and I everybody goes through grief right I, I lost um my mum when I was seven but um, this was the first time I'd experienced grief as an adult. And it was so unexpected from somebody so young. And Sophie was like the kindest, most optimistic. She's like, we used to call her the optimism to my pessimism because I, everything I could find a pessimistic slant and she'd always be finding the optimistic in it all. And she was really tiny. And like, I used to make her sit in the middle if we were going to get a cab because she was just, like small enough to sit there but just relentlessly positive. And um, she was with me through a lot of ups and downs of writing, actually, because I tried to write for ages. And um, I remember being at a tube station once we were saying goodbye and, and she was like, Becky, you just need to write something real. And I suppose that's what I've done. It just took a while to get there. And, and it's um, a book I couldn't really have written maybe without the experience, but it's also a book I couldn't write necessarily immediately in the aftermath. It took me a couple of years. Firstly, thank you for sharing that. And, I, and I'm deeply sorry that that's what you went through and very often at a time like this and grief is a funny thing regular listeners have heard me talk about this before but I lost my uncle during COVID one of my mum's brothers um, he went into hospital on New Year's Day and didn't come out alive and it's bizarre because I still have on my phone the WhatsApp message that I sent him to say you know look you know you, you've got this you'll pull through you'll be yeah. fine just do what they say and it has the two blue ticks and I know that he read it or somebody read it but I went I don't want to delete it because yeah, if I, delete it, it, I know. I am. Um, I reread a lot of my last, the last messages between me and Sophie for ages. For afterwards, I would keep going back in and kept rereading it. And um, I do you know what? I think I. I'm not going to check while I'm on because it made me sad. But um, I think I've still got her number saved. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I still, I still scroll past it, and and it, every now and then it's like a shock. But I can't. Um, even now, many years later, I can't. Um. Yeah, I, I have a my wallpaper is a photo of him in his thirties when he was in a band uh-huh. because it's a I want it to be I want a memory of him to be a celebration and, and I and I think that this is really interesting because now I know that that was the inspiration I I think I can really you know focus the questions in a little bit more because it's actually a very unconventional thing to do to take a character that dies and have them stick around for yeah. the for the rest of the novel which is what you do which I adored <laughs> almost as if even though Scarlet has stepped off the curb into the last minute of her life yeah she demands your attention she's not going anywhere until she is certain that certain things are are in place and I I thought that was really powerful and often when people die suddenly 
there is a huge amount of of silence and people say things which are understandable like i could just keep expecting them to walk through the front door yeah yeah and what you've done here is you've 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 created a literary vehicle with with which scarlet is i am going nowhere because yeah. i want to make sure that my best mate evie is, is okay. going to be okay was yeah. that was was it always going to be from the two perspectives of the friends so, yeah, it's no secret that she dies. And actually the first, I have a prologue now, but the first line of the first chapter stayed from me forever. And it was the first line I wrote to the book and it's the morning that I die, I'm in a rush to leave the flat. And you know, like right off the back that she's going to die. And yet she's the first person narrator. In terms of writing from her perspective, it was a really fun thing to do, actually. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it's a very fun book, but um, from the kind of what we've talked about, but the aim was to to have it kind of uplifting by the end of it. And um you can play around with the narrative device that you can't when you, you know, because you can cheat a bit with some of the stuff that you do because she's going to die. And, and you get away with that in a way that you don't necessarily get away with if you were going to do it otherwise, because how would she know she's going to die? But there's a kind of allowance for it, I think, when you're doing something like this. I'm obviously not the first one to do this. So the big one is obviously Lovely Bones. And there's been another couple, but they tend to be around... Um, and I, re- and I went back and re- I read Lovely Bones as a teenager and loved it. And I went back and reread it just to see how somebody else did it. But they're quite often around murder and bad things happening. So I was doing, I wanted to do it in a way that was still kind of in a like women's fiction commercial sphere. And that was something I was very conscious of. But yeah, it was always going to be from her point of view and from Evie's. It was actually going to be from three points of view to begin with. And I started, I wrote the first 50,000 words of three points of view, including Nate, who is the other kind of, I guess, main character, but but very much secondary in, in this version to Evie and Scarlett. And, but he had his own voice for the first 50,000 words. And um, I had to go back and delete him <laughs> as a point of view character and sort of decided it was more about the, there's there's kind of two love stories right there's there's a love there's a traditional love story and then there's the love story between Scarlett and Evie which is the love story between friends and that was the one that was the ended up being the more important one to tell and I don't remember the novel the the kind of inception point for it was actually a bit different I think I started with basically the scene that happens at the end almost and like a decision that Scarlett has to make towards the end of the novel and that was maybe going to be like midway through the novel. And then so so it was all it was quite different in its first idea. Not that I ever wrote that version, but this is the one that ended up being being written. Chapter two, Star-Crossed Lovers. Let's talk about Nate. Scarlet dies trying to help Nate. And so Evie blames him for her death. Nate himself feels plenty of guilt, and quite rightly so. Without the incident, Scarlet is very much still alive, and yet Nate finds every way to inject himself into Evie's life. Now, Evie feels the loss of Scarlet so strongly, not only because she was a close friend, but also because of her underlying health condition. Evie was emotionally and often physically reliant on Scarlet, and here she is, constantly confronted with the physical representation of Scarlet's death. So what's truly shocking is how Nate and Evie eventually find a way of getting on. In fact, they end up in a relationship. That is an uncomfortable twist, and I loved it. 
it's almost star-crossed lovers, isn't it? And, and, and it's, you're falling for somebody you, you shouldn't be. And Evie has a huge amount of guilt over that, actually. And at the beginning, she really does have a lot of anger towards Nate. And um, she expresses anger in a very different way than Scarlett would have. So Scarlett was the much more confident and vivacious and outgoing one. And um, Evie's much more measured, partly because, as you say, of her condition, but partly just that is the person that she is. So she's very angry towards him and she doesn't really know how to express that sometimes. And Scarlett, from her, from her point of view, is also very angry at Nate because she blames him for the fact that she's dead. And um, I was always conscious, actually, that that you'd have to buy into what was happening. And it was a difficult thing to play off, which is why then Nate had to kind of develop a bit more as a person, too. And you had to understand why he was doing what he was doing, because he kind of forces his way into Evie's life a bit at the beginning because he feels guilty. So he, you know, he find, he, he's with Scarlett as she dies and he holds her hand in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, even though she's actually dead. And um, he kind of feels a lot of, as he should do, like we said, but it, but it's always, it was very clearly an accident. It's, it, Nate has, has been slightly irresponsible on his bike, but he's not actually done anything wrong. He's not driven the car into somebody. He's not stabbed somebody. He's not actually guilty of anything other than slightly, you know, wrong place, wrong time being slightly distracted when he shouldn't be but just a mistake that anybody can make and it wouldn't have had an impact most of the time so that's something that that all three characters actually need to come to terms with is that it's it was an accident and that's a really hard thing to come to terms with when you want someone to blame isn't it I always think of you in this book whenever I see and it's in London you see it a lot is somebody cycling in peak traffic whilst on their mobile phone I I saw it they saw it this morning it's astonishing isn't it yeah and it doesn't take much, does it? And in, in no. a city like London and, and where everybody's in a rush all the time. And that really is the notion. I mean, that is the title. It is literally one moment. In fact, it's a fraction. It's a fraction yeah. of a second. I'm fascinated that originally Nate had his own perspective. And yeah. I'm processing that in real time. But I think, that, <laughs> I, I think that that was absolutely the right idea to take that away from him. Because I think it it makes him earn his arc a lot more, doesn't it? Yeah, I, it definitely was the right thing to do. It was a hard thing to do because I'd written a lot of it, <laughs> but it was 100% the right thing to do. And and um, it didn't go out on submission to publishers with it went. I was, you know, it, that was at the very early draft stage that it got cut out before it even finished the book, actually, which is not what you're supposed to do, but it worked. <laughs> I used to wait yeah. till you get to the end to edit. But, um... <laughs> Let's talk about this notion of this third love story then, which I'll share with you, because one of my favorite examples of classic storytelling is the original movie of rocky which people think oh it's a boxing film why is that important you think well it it happens to have boxing in it but it's not it it has a perfect arc it's exceptionally well written by stallone but it is a love story and i don't mean rocky and adrian the character who he ends up marrying i mean that rocky's arc really is conditioned by this notion that before he can fix anything he know he needs to learn to love himself yeah i think the third story here is evie who thinks she's a burden to everyone, who is essentially reliant on other people for help. But she is now forced to confront the world without her crutch, without her best friend that she's known since she was little. And it's only by doing that that she will discover that actually it's going to be okay. I'm going to be all right. And so when Evie initially you know, blames Nate and and this thing that keeps on on coming up throughout. And we'll talk about it a bit more. But every time Scarlett's name is mentioned, it's this big betrayal between them. That I loved that. But Evie needs to learn that she can cope 
without yeah. Scarlet. And I, and I love that because without Scarlet's death, there's no way Evie, Evie is going to go to those dark places, is there? Yeah, and it's something that's quite sad, isn't it? Because it is only by Scarlet dying that she then sort of comes to terms with stuff that she's been, I don't think we've said, but, but she's, she's, that's not really a secret either, but she's, she's been diagnosed with MS and she's letting that form, as is very understandable, she's letting that form a lot of who she is. And she was kind of already in a downward spiral and the diagnosis was, a, was the kind of last straw, I suppose. And, and then over the last few years, Scarlet's, Scarlet's grown and, and become more and more successful in her sphere and Evie's kind of diminished and not being able to do what she loves anymore when she certainly feels that way and you're right if Scarlett had stayed alive she might have carried on doing that and relying on Scarlett and Scarlett maybe wouldn't have have noticed the things she starts to notice after she died I guess it's very sad to look at it that way because it shouldn't take someone dying for you to find yourself and I, I that's definitely not what I was trying to say that Scarlett had you know had to die otherwise Evie would have never found it it was more that um seeing the way you can get through grief and and that like there is light at the other side rather than it being that Scarlett had to die. And hopefully, you know, if, if Scarlett hadn't stepped off from the pavement, then maybe it may have been another trigger. It just might not have happened for a, for a couple of years or whatever it might have been. But it's a very clever literary technique that you've used here, which is that by enabling Scarlett to stick around, she gets the joy of seeing that for herself in Evie. She gets yeah. to see Evie's arc for herself, which is in some way, you know, it doesn't fix the problem that she's dead, but it does make you as a reader think, oh, that's that's one of life's greatest blessings, actually, is to see someone that you love grow as yeah. a person and confront it. It just happens to be from within the confines of she has not passed over to the other side yeah. yet. She's still yeah. with us. But I love the fact that you gave her that visibility of Evie's transformation. Yeah, it was so much fun to write because you slightly get to play the omniscient narrator a bit. But she, one of my favourite scenes is um, when Nate takes e invites Evie over for his brother's fortieth barbecue, basically, and they have a they're having a barbecue outside, and the the Nate's nieces are there, and the his brother and his brother's wife is there, and his mum is there, and and um, it's just like an English barbecue scene when they're all outside drinking gin and tonic and having um, burgers and it's told not from Evie's point of view but from Scarlett's and because Scarlett is on the outside looking in and it's kind of a turning point for for both Scarlett and Evie that scene because Scarlett starts to realise stuff that she hadn't maybe clocked before she died and and Evie starts to kind of turn a corner with her as well herself and her arc as well and um and Scarlett notices things that Evie isn't noticing, but actually she's she's noticing things about her friend again that she wouldn't wouldn't otherwise. And it's fun to be able to do that with somebody that has such investment in the. So from that point of view, some people have said that Evie's very much it starts sort of Scarlett, but Evie's very much really the main character because it's her journey that you're following. It's just so it's sometimes through Scarlett's perspective. I mean, Scarlett does have her own arc as well, but she does. But she exists as this literal and metaphorical spirit if you like that sort of pervades every aspect of Nate and Evie's relationship which I found stunning because inevitably given and let, let's am I being unfair no because it was his fault right it was an accident right but he was he, was, <laughs> yeah. he wasn't paying attention and he should have been and as you you, yeah. you know you've correctly articulated in the damn title one moment is all it takes to change brackets end a life yeah and so every single time her name is mentioned, usually by Evie, there is this silence and yeah. you can kind of think, you can feel the energy being sucked out of the scene whenever it is because 
the very mention of her name is enough to remind everybody and the reader that yeah. the person she's saying the name to is yeah. probably the person that got her killed. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was an interesting thing to do. And um, it was something they both had to work through. Um, but that's very astute. It's it's I've not talked about the book. I mean, I guess being a debut and, and not I mean, I've talked a bit about but not but not with people that have read it a huge amount. So it's interesting that that is exactly it, that um, it kind of hangs in the air between them. And it's something that well, they'd have to decide if they want to work through it or not. Really. It, it put me in mind of um, a book by Catherine Newman, We All Want Impossible Things. And Catherine came on the show in a previous series. And for a book, for a book about death and being <laughs> in a hospice at the end of somebody's life, that, that book is astonishingly upbeat and is full I, of... I haven't read it. I've got it on my bookshelf, the beautiful yellow cover. And I bought it because I really do want to read it. It sounds incredibly up my street, but I'm so scared that I'm going to cry. Well, I mean, there's... Every, well, don't worry, because within 30 seconds, you'll be in fits of laughter again. You really will. But <laughs> the reason it put me in mind of that is, is because it is essentially a story about female friendship and a very empowering yeah. female friendship. And a book about somebody like Scarlet dying, you could have taken that in a completely different direction. You didn't, you decided to do it the way that you've done it. And I think it's, it's all the more successful because of it. Just this notion that, you know, if you could change things and then you, you kind of get pulled out of it because you think, well, I can't change it. That's it's yeah. happened. There's, there's no way, but what you do with Scarlet is, is really quite interesting. She has this sort of groundhog day, this series of yeah. moments, doesn't it? Where she is reimagining yeah. that morning before she dies and even and this is not a spoiler because we know she dies but even yeah. sort of reimagining her coffee order you know yeah. changing it from a black coffee to a is it a cream egg latte i think yeah. it is something yeah. like that you know yeah. what if i could do something what if i could just phone my mom or tell evie or, or do all of these things but ultimately i think what she concludes at least to me is Evie's transformation, Evie's arc, Evie's new relationship and newfound love with Nate is only possible with Scarlet dead. Yeah. Because there is no real, you know what, you've lived in London, you know what it's like, the chances of meeting somebody like, maybe it would have happened, maybe it would have been serendipity, I don't know, but it's unlikely to have happened. Yeah. And I think what she realises going through this I'm going to change my coffee order every time I, th I think about it, is that, do you know what? It doesn't matter what coffee I order, because in order for this to play out the way that it's played out, I have to die. I, I found that beautiful. Yeah, she, um, so she relives, and she relives other memories as well, and she goes back and she kind of learns things about her life and, and Evie and, and her other parts of her life too, actually, through reliving the memories. But um. Yeah, it's it is that question, isn't it? It's that what if I think of like what if I had done this? What if I'd done this differently? And it's something um I'm really obsessed with <laughs> in my own life. And I if I'm on a bad day, I catch myself doing it where I'm like, oh, if I'd just done this differently, it would all be better because of this. Or or and there's very I know I'm not the only one that does that. I know loads of people do it where where you have those what if moments and you kind of and for me, making decisions can be really agonizing because <laughs> I I'm worried that I'll make the decision and then it'll be the wrong decision and I'll look yeah. back and regret it and I get frozen. So I feel like I'm really frozen and I can't make any decision. And, and it's something my friends hate, but um, 
I won't make any decision and I'll, I'll wait until it's forced on me or I'll follow the path of least resistance because I'm so scared to make a decision. It's something I'm aware I do. It's something I'm working on um, quite unsuccessfully. But that's kind of it, right? That you, it comes back to that a bit that like, can you change it? And could you have done anything? And then um, people feel differently. And actually editors felt differently on submission about Scarlett and whether she needed to die for, for Evie and Nate and whether, whether actually we could have the Evie and Nate happening anyway. And um, it was interesting having that reaction because just anybody has it with a book, right, that, you, that people feel differently about it. And it's that kind of hope, isn't it, that everything works out for everyone at the end. But um, I suppose life isn't always like that. No, it's not. And I know it's fiction and I know you've made it up and I know it is based on something very personal that happens to you, but it is a fictionalized story at the end of the day. And I think that there is there is certainly more than enough redemption, uplift, hope for the future, even with Scarlet's death. You know, you're sort of fringing into fairy tale territory there, aren't you? Yeah, it's funny because it's... um. It sounds it sounds kind of very fantasy-esque and speculative when you talk about Scarlet being dead and beyond the grave, but I really didn't want it to feel like that. I wanted it to feel, to feel quite grounded in reality. And with that, in my, I had to have certain things in mind for that that I didn't want to go too off the wall. It, it's very much packaged and it sits in commercial women's fiction in the Waterstones. You know, it doesn't sit in the fantasy section, for instance. Um, so it's very, it had to therefore feel you had to go along with it you have to fit you had to sort of accept that this was it and that it was plausible and that it just was happening that way rather than veering too much into the fantasy-esque area chapter three the breakthrough we featured many debut novelists on this show and this is the part i love the most learning from their experiences writing their first book hearing about the highs and lows and there are many of lows of the journey and i know that many of you listening haven't published your first book yet so it's always a chance to take notes becky mentioned her crippling lack of ability to make decisions so let's find out how she overcame that becky's already mentioned she took a sabbatical given her day job as a publicist she certainly would have needed the free time to write the novel but interestingly Writing wasn't her initial plan. It wasn't actually intentional to write. My first attempt at writing a book was when I was 21 and I was still at university. I took a couple of years before I went to university, so I was one of the older ones. And it was in my second year, maybe, at university, and I was I wrote it over the summer. And um, I fell in love with writing because I felt I love, obviously, to work in publishing and to write. I think you need to love reading, right? So, and most most writers also love reading. And I loved reading. And um, when I first started to write the book, I got that same feeling I get from reading when I was writing. I was so desperate to write the story. I really wanted to know how it played out. I loved my characters and I was really excited. And it was a it was a very like indicative of what I was reading at the time. So it was like a YA fantasy with a love triangle, as as everything was. Well, of um, course. Yeah. <laughs> And um, I remember reading, as any aspiring authors will be able to relate to, all of the statistics and read, trying to figure out how to get published as I was writing, which maybe wasn't the right way to do it, but I was feeling very proactive. And um, the statistics were something like 200 agents get 200 submissions a week and they get take on like four new writers a year. And I remember seeing that statistics and being like, yeah, I'll definitely be one of the four and being being like weirdly confident 
very naively confident, but I was sure it was brilliant. And I remember reading loads of advice and being like, no, I'm I like well, the show don't tell advice and all of that kind of stuff. And I was like, no, I'm I'm definitely doing it. I'm definitely oh, this is brilliant. This book is brilliant. It's probably made into a film. It's so brilliant. And um, it obviously wasn't brilliant, but, <laughs> but I sort of needed to believe it was to finish it and to realise that I loved writing. And I then tried ages to make that work. I, I spent money I didn't have on credit cards, on kind of getting editorial fee- feedback from literary consultancies. And I redrafted that book about four times, submitted to agents. Obviously, nothing came of it. Like I said, it actually wasn't a very good book and I would never go back to it now. And that was the first one I wrote and I'm now 33 so it took me what 12 years to get published and I wrote before even write, working in publishing I wrote another book which was another YA book and another one where I went through loads of things and I wasn't quite as confident on that one because I just had the rejections but I did try and then I needed to get a job <laughs> and um, I was working just as a, like a temp at the time and I needed to get a proper job and I was again crippling indecision but I had come to the decision to work where I wanted to work in publishing because I loved reading and um, I don't know how many people know about this about how many different roles there are in publishing because when I first thought of it all I thought of was an editor because you right you think of publishing and you think of ed- an editor and I was like I want to be an editor editors get to read books I want to be one of those and um, obviously it's a lot more complicated than that but but going in so I applied to loads of editorial jobs I didn't get any and I remember coming home one day and just like crying so I couldn't couldn't get it done. And then I got an in I, I branched out and was like, I actually did a week's work experience at a children's publisher and stayed on a sofa and found out that there's more departments just editorial and that actually there's loads of jobs you can do in publishing. So so then I just started applying to every other job, you know, assistant job. It's all assistant when you start out. And um I got a job as a publicity assistant. They took a chance on me. And at the time, I was vaguely thinking it might be lead me to be an editor. But what happened is I loved it. <laughs> and um, I learned so much. About, I had a brilliant boss and I learned so much about being a publicist. And I was very lucky in my like start out to my career. And I figured out what a publicist does, <laughs> and, um, which was a bit of mystery towards that point. And um, you also get to read lots of books as a publicist and you get to talk about them because you're trying to convince people to read them. So it's it's a lot of fun. And But while that was happening, I also did actually get an agent for a third book. And I was about 25, I think, at the time. I got an agent and I this was after doing a creative writing course. So I did the, um, I think it was a three-month one, the three-month Curtis Brown creative writing course and I was doing that in the evenings once I'd moved to London and I did it in the evenings and um, met some lovely people who I'm still in touch with now in 2015 and I wrote another book and off the bat and that was a slightly better book and I did get an agent and I had multiple agents interested which is obviously the dream for all authors right and you get to go around and meet them and you get given biscuits and it's great fun and I went with one of the agents and she was really excited and she thought it would sell internationally. And we just got complete silence back from publishers. And that was a real lesson to me because even working in publishing, I think I was still an assistant at the time. Maybe that's why I didn't get it then. But you sort of think that once you've got an agent, that's it. Or I did at the beginning of my career. Everyone and- thinks that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very much not. And it was a real lesson on it that it went out and it, and it is not a guarantee. It's a lovely thing to get, but it's not a guarantee. So I then tried to write another couple of books or another like half of one and another one. And and, um, and the feedback from um, from my agent was not a lot happens basically on this. And I was like, right, OK. So I actually ended up moving agents in the end. But in between times, not for any reason other than I think she lost a bit of confidence in me and it all just understand it. I mean, I wrote another terrible book, so that didn't help. But 
during this point, I'd kind of grown my career in publicity had, had taken off a bit more and I'd had some really successes on that one and I'd moved publisher. And at that point, I decided to take a break and I moved to Mozambique in Africa for six months and I was volunteering with horses and I was working at exchange food and accommodation. I did actually think I'd have loads of time to write and I did not because it was very long days and obviously the horses need lots of looking after. So, but it was a break in terms of like, figuring out stuff I mean actually Sophie died during that period and and a lot of just big life stuff happened and I ended up staying there much longer than I expected so I ended up getting stuck out there during the pandemic because all the borders everyone remembers all the borders closed and I had about two days to decide whether to get out of the country and I just didn't decide (laughs) so I just (laughs) (laughs) it's a real pattern here isn't there (laughs) so because I didn't decide I then got stuck but I say stuck it was it was brilliant I was on an island I was looking after six horses and that was much later so that was 2020 so kind of a year after Sophie and and um, at that point I did try to try writing again and I got a new agent who's lovely but believe it or not another book didn't sell to publishers but then my I had a conversation about one moment and I had the idea for it and um, she told me she thought it was a good idea and I wrote it, and that is the one that got me published. Well, out of a series of novels that ended up not going anywhere, you have produced something extraordinary. One Moment is out now. It is an absolute triumph. Becky Hunter, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Becky Hunter for today's episode, our first of Series 8. And to recap, what have we learnt? Writing can help us process grief and gain strength from it. That's not to say it'll relieve you of grief, but it can help. Often your most profound work will come from the darkest places. Killing off a main character in the first page might seem insane on the surface, but Becky has made it work. Feel empowered to break writing conventions and do things differently in your own writing. And finally, getting an agent does not guarantee success. Don't think yourself a failure if your book isn't taken up, even with an agent at your back. It's all part of the journey. Maybe you need a new book, or maybe you need a new agent. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch with me directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Also, you can sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. Titled Inside Stories, these events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 